Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. Just want to give you a heads up that this podcast is split into two episodes. As we were editing, we realized the content matter is so rich um, and we wanted to be mindful of people's attention spans. And so we decided to try to keep uh, it around 30 minutes or so for each episode. Gives you some time to process the information in between. Um, But I'm also going to implore and ask you to come back and listen to the second episode. Um, Our friend Corey really shares so much of his heart in this episode and so much of his experience. And um, it's just a beautiful lesson in how we can be together. So see you on the other side. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> Tommy and I have lots of fun. If you have not had the privilege of listening to one of our episodes yet, we, uh, we bring the laughs and the wisdom all together. Today, we are joined by Corey Leak. Welcome. Yes, sir. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. How's everybody doing? <laughs> Corey is not only a fellow podcaster, but he is a speaker, a communicator, an artist. He has a passion for bringing justice, faith, and culture together. So, Corey, thank mm. you so much for joining us, hanging out, having some good oh, conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I, I love, I just love the concept of what you're doing with this podcast, and, and I'm, I feel super blessed and honored to be, to be on. So, so thanks for having me. Mm, mm -mm. It is our honor. So Corey, tell us a little bit about what started your journey. Have you always been moving this direction of being a speaker, communicator that just, if you all have never crossed paths with Corey's work, he does an amazing job of dialoguing of bringing to people together on social media and mm-hmm. he does it in such a way that you can really tell that it's intentional and it's not just a gimmick or to get ratings or to get people to you know the Facebook anal- algorithms um, there's a real intent so Corey I would love for you to share a little bit about what started your platform yeah yeah I you know the Facebook thing is really interesting because I didn't set out to engage people in dialogue on Facebook. It just something that kind of started happening. Like I just started saying things that I thought were true about the world we live in. And people started engaging in those conversations. And and I think it was probably a couple of years ago. I just asked um, the question, why do you, or don't you go to church? Um, and it was like, I thought it was, you know, I thought maybe a couple people would chime in and then 
hundreds of comments later, I'm like, wow, this is, you know, really something that people want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So I started asking other questions around race and politics and religion mm -hmm. and people started engaging. And, and then I, um, you know, I think it was, oh, I know it was Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. It was that week yeah. that, um, those two, um, nonviolent, uh, black men were killed by police. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember that I was really grieved over, um, Alton Sterling. And I was kind of like, you know, I was on Twitter that night and I didn't really see anybody talking about it. And, and so I, mm -hmm. I started tweeting like for the audience, can you refresh, um, them on some of the details regarding that case? Yes. So Alton Sterling was, um, I think he, he had been, if my memory serves me correctly, he had been shoplifting or something, but, and he had sort of got away and had a run in with the police in an alley. And he was running away from the police. And a policeman pulled out a gun and shot him in the back and killed him. Um, and I remember just like being, you know, really like, torn up over that. And then 24 hours later, after the whole Alton Sterling situation, we had Philando Castile in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, yeah. who was riding in the car with his girlfriend and I believe his daughter was in the back seat and he was pulled over. And, and the thing that got me about this was I thought that after the 24 hours after Alton Sterling had become a national news story, Mm -hmm. That if I was a police officer and I saw um, a black man, he would have to be brandishing a weapon out the window of his car or like he'd have to be doing something really, really aggressive for me to yeah. engage. Like, I, I think mm -hmm. I'd, I'd have been a little bit on edge. And and the fact that a day later, an officer would shoot and kill a black man who's sitting in his car. Not, not, he hadn't pulled a weapon on him. He'd simply told him he had a weapon, didn't reach for it. And the fact that he was mm -hmm. shot and killed 24 hours later, it made me feel as though our lives were not valued. Mm -hmm. And I just woke up, um, you know, and I was just like the next day after, after this, I woke up and I'm just like in tears. And it was the first time I had been in tears over it. I was sad, um, about Trayvon Martin and some yeah. of the other instances, but I was in tears over these two because it, it, I guess maybe I was a little older. I just felt it more. And from that day forward, I was like, I got to talk about this stuff. I mean, I, you know, I'm like, I, I know how to talk. I, I'm, you know, I've never been an activist, um, but I got to talk about this stuff. And, and, I, and, and I love what Andre said to me, Andre uh, Henry, who's a good friend of mine said to me on my podcast, he said that after that, he decided to not allow the news cycle to dictate when he would talk about race. And mm. for me also, it was around that time and he gave me language to understand what I was doing. I was no longer going to let CNN or Fox news or MSNBC or anyone else dictate when it was okay to talk about issues of race and police brutality and things of that nature. So I was just kind of like, you know, I think I want to fill my timeline with conversations about things that move the world forward about justice. I I'm not going to filter it. I'm not going to police it. I'm not mm -hmm. going to, you know, I'm not going to, you know, jump, take, take sides when people are having an argument about something. And I'm not, and the, the other decision I made that I think it's been hard to stick with at times 
um, was that I wasn't going to just block people because I didn't like what they said. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't going to just like instantly be like, Oh, I don't like what you said. So I'm going to block you. Or I disagree with you. Or even that you're racist because I have a lot of racist people make comments on my posts and I don't mm-hmm. block them. I don't delete it. And the reason I don't block or delete them is because I don't know how many Game of Thrones fans there are there are out there <laughs> listening to your show or what you guys are. I'm but sure there's several. <laughs> there's this scene in Game of Thrones. Hopefully I'm not spoiling this for anybody. So, you know, if this is spoiler a spoiler for alert, you have no but excuse. I, I you should have watched have, it already. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> right? if you haven't watched it, no, you don't want to. Um, but like I, um, there's a scene where Jon Snow and that whole group of people that he's with. And I think um, uh, Daenerys are going to see Cersei and they want to convince Cersei that the white walkers are a real danger. So they bring one to her. They take it out of the box and they say here. And, and they, cause they said, I can tell you all day that we have a threat, that we are being threatened by these white walkers, zombies coming to kill all of us. Um, or I can show you. And so sometimes when I'm post something on social media and someone makes a racist comment, I go, I can tell you, or I can show you that people actually think this way. That like people actually believe that if that the the reason why there are uh, less wealthy black people, why black people are less likely to own homes, why there's um, the percentage of black people in prison versus the percentage of black people in American population is so disproportionate that they would that, that they actually believe by what they're saying. I can infer that they actually believe. Mm-hmm that black people are inherently more violent, more irresponsible, um, you know, less hardworking, all of the things that like, that, that must naturally lead to this disproportionate distribution of justice. And I can tell you that white people think that way, or I can show you that white people think that way. And so I don't delete their comments and I don't block them because I want them to continue to come and, and share, share your thoughts with us so that everyone can see the kind of stuff that exists in the world and how people think and how people talk to strangers who they barely know. I think you had mentioned, um, I was looking through your website and you said that you wanted to not erase bias and ignorance. And I definitely see that you're holding space for that. But I think one of the things that we've talked about in the past and some of the conversation that is sort of surfacing up with thinking about permission to be, um, I think with white, in white supremacy, being in a condition of white supremacy, um, we t- I think we talk about appearances all the time um, mm-hmm. and, and trying to uh, pretend that we're farther advanced than we are versus being mm-hmm. in relationship with one another and letting those mm-hmm. biases and ignorances um, be what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think when we let them be, then it shows who we are becoming as we navigate and work mm-hmm. through them. Um, and yeah. I, I just saw Brian Stevenson speak here at a, one of the local colleges and he talked mm-hmm. about in, in the importance of um, social justice change. Um, and if you don't know Brian Stevenson, he is the author of Just Mercy. It just came out also, um, on the big screen. Highly recommend it. Uh, uh, 
deeply revealing look into uh, the U.S. American criminal justice system. But he talks mm. about, for social change, the need to create proximity uh, yeah. with people. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Like change does not happen unless we get mm-hmm. proximate, unless we get adjacent um, mm-hmm. with people yes. who are different from us. And so that it's definite is apparent that your gift in holding space for that to create change, to create meaningful change, man, thank you for, for that work. It is it, so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and I, I do try to hold space for people. And, and I think asking questions is so much uh, better than making statements when you're really trying to understand someone, you know, because um, you know, I can't say, that I disagree with you if I can't repeat back to you what you said and what you believe and have you go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. And so often we're talking past each other on polarizing issues that like, like we're just like kind of, we're seeing buzzwords and, and phrases. And we think we know all there is to know about what a person is saying based on those things. And we just sort of often lose our ability to deeply listen to each other. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that's important, but I also think it's important that like people of color and women and any other marginalized, you know, social group in in America or in the world, not feel like they have to put up with everything in order to reconcile. Because a Mm -hmm. lot of times the burden for reconciliation falls on the people who have been pushed to the side and oppressed. Mm -hmm. And then like the majority culture will go, well, if you want to be reconciled, then you need to do this, that, and the other. And that's just unfair. You know, it's just, that's just not right. Like, I think that, yes, we make space for people. Yes, people are whole people, including racist people, which is very difficult for me to, mm. to, to grasp. But yeah. they are still whole people. And they still have a story. And there's reasons behind why they think the way they are and who they are. And, and so there is a degree of patience that I have with people as they learn. Uh, but I'm also just not willing to um, allow people to have a platform in my life or in my world who are unwilling to listen. Mm. Um, I'll leave you in the space because you still serve a purpose, but I'm not going to platform you. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to endorse or um, do anything that lets, that makes anybody believe or you believe that like what you're saying is, is helpful to the conversation um, because I just don't think that's, I don't think, I don't think that's right. I don't think it's just, I think it dishonors the people that are really trying to move forward in the world. Mm, 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 mm. Man, it's profound. And as white people, we have this tendency to believe that we should have access and have stages for everything. Mm. And we were brought up this way and being brought up a way does not excuse behavior. Hmm. Um, Hmm. I've been learning and I still am learning very much to be curious. And a part of being curious is learning and listening. And I also want to encourage listeners that part of listening doesn't mean a person of color has to be, you have to go get them and they have to talk to you. There are Hmm. so many resources. Mm -hmm. There are so many people of color, black authors, Latinx authors, Asia, there's, it's just, there's unlimited resources. We live in a day and an age where it is at Mm. your fingertips. Um, and let's be honest, if you're a white person, 
there's a higher chance that you have access and modes of transportation, even if it's not financial access, you can you have modes of transportation to get you to a library. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. So yeah. it's just, there's not, we don't have an excuse. And dear, good Jesus, don't say <laughs> you're too tired to do it. Like, in that it's so much work. Too busy. Because you busy yeah. because I'm tired. I have my mom of a five and an eight year old and I work full time and I have a husband and well, he, he's really a co-partner, so I'm not going to say it like that. Mm. Um, but <laughs> one of the reasons that we are gradually making this shift to focus more on anti-racism with permission to be is because I believe that we are one humanity and one community, and we are not living that way. We have never mm. lived that way. And so we need to learn our history and we need to learn what the details really were, not what we were taught in Western high school mm. or not what we were taught. Mm. I don't, now I'm a little older, um, but back in the 90s, we were not taught black history. We were just like everything else, highlighted, do the highlights during the month of February and that's it. Yeah. And that um, is tokenism and not even good tokenism if there's such a thing, which I don't think right. there is. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's not. <laughs> I don't think there's good, but it was really extra bad. <laughs> like, just no. Yeah. When I think about it being Black History Month, so we've been in conversations too, Becca, about like how ways that we can honor the contributions of black people honor uh, Black History Month and, and recognizing that every month is Black History Month. It's just mm -hmm. not February. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so it is up to us the, going to riff off of Brian Stevens. And again, it's in, in that another way that we create change is that we have to change the narratives. Mm -hmm. And so the narratives that we've been handed are through a lands of white supremacy, the uh, conquest and, and colonization. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And so then we have to go back in and, and create new narratives, new containers, new contexts and add to um, and, and sort of parse out those things. And that's the beauty of Black History Month is that you get sort of a concentrated effort to sort of parse out different narratives than what we were handed growing up uh, that uh, like Martin Luther King was just this peacemaker. Martin Luther King mm -hmm. Jr. was a radical. <laughs> he, was a ra uh, uh, yeah. uh, he went to jail more times than Malcolm X did, but yet mm -hmm. we're taught that Ma Malcolm X was violent. <laughs> yes. yeah. Yep. yeah. 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 Malcolm X is the, is the, is the person that you, that, you know, I was working at a church and it was uh, MLK day and it's a predominantly white evangelical church I was working at. And, um, every MLK day, um, or weekend since I, you know, over the last several years, white evangelicals have been very intentional about making sure that they check the MLK box, yeah. um, yeah. on that weekend yeah. and it's one way, shape or form. And, and a lot of times it's, it's tokenism. And, and I think some people genuinely try to do something that honors Dr. King. Um, Can we define tokenism real quick? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I think tokenism, um, it, it's hard to define. I'm, I'm really not great at defining things. I usually wind up using metaphors, but yeah. But, <laughs> but, Johnny on the spot, right? <laughs> but, but what I'll say with, with tokenism is, is it's heartless 
uh, hollow nods to culturally important moments and people mm-hmm. um, and justice efforts. It is, it, it's, it's almost, I mean, I guess to use the analogy, it's, it's like, you know, sort of putting a token in a jukebox, you know, it, it's not really being committed to something. It's not, it's not committing to learning how to play a song. It's putting a quarter mm-hmm. in the jukebox and having the jukebox play the song in really an artificial way because it's not present in the room. And so mm-hmm. I think for, for a lot of people, when they go near these conversations about race specifically, it is, as you mentioned, Becca, it is I, my anti-racism work is having black friends. And then I, I can relax because that's easy. And anytime I say something or do something racist, I can just go, well, put the token in the jukebox. I have black friends and my black yep. friends can sort of be my, you know, the, the thing that comes out and says to everyone, oh, I'm not racist. And so around MLK, you you do see a lot of token tokenization, which is. I've, we have one black staff person on our, in our, our at our church. This is the time of year where our whole church hears from them. Either they're preaching or they're singing or they're doing some kind of special tribute to Dr. King. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I was at this church and we did a video. It was Maya Angelou talking about Dr. King, Gandhi, and, and Malcolm X. And the lead pastor called me. Uh, I was at the DMV and one day off. Lead pastor called me and said, hey, I just saw the video we need to cut Malcolm X because Malcolm X hated white people. And I was like, huh, it's so interesting to me how different Malcolm X is understood from the black community to white evangelicals who have a whitewashed ideology about Dr. King. Cause there are things that Dr. King said and was Mm -hmm. about that. If we said those things on Sunday mornings at church, people would go, lose their minds and say, I'm leaving this church because they've abandoned the gospel. And and so I think that there is this idea about Dr. King that, that, like you said, that he was this, you know, really nice, friendly guy who never said anything that ruffled any feathers. The same thing that it's the same thing that evangelicals have ironically done with Jesus is that here's a human being who is executed by the state for things that he has said and done and think that we're sitting down about him. But it's now, it's everything about Jesus is sort of sterilized into spiritual talk and metaphor and abstract ideas about how to be a better person. And we, we completely, in evangelical circles, remove the Jesus versus empire. We yeah. remove the Dr. King versus empire. And it's just mm-hmm. an individual who's encouraging us to be good people as if they're both motivational speakers, <laughs> but they're actually legitimately trying to tear down empire in not just in our minds, but in the world. Yeah. Because when people start to believe that empire and hierarchy is, is evil and is a, is a social disease, they will act to remove it and to get rid of it, no matter where it comes from. So now with, with the reason, you know, we have such a swelling evangelical support for the despot we have in office in America (laughs) is because people don't believe any longer that Jesus was versus anything. It's yeah. like Jesus is for everyone and Jesus is 
for Donald Trump, regardless of how evil, how much, how many, how much he lies, how, how, mm-hmm. how much of an, an example of just a, an immoral human being he may be. Christians are like, well, you know, Jesus loves him. <laughs> and, and that's just like, you know, our, our, that's a, a poor understanding of revolutionaries like Dr. King, Jesus, Gandhi, mm-hmm. Mandela, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, <laughs> it's like a, a old black woman say, I love Jesus, but I curse a little. <laughs> it's a both and, okay? <laughs> but it, so I'm, I'm reading James Cone right now, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And I mean, it's James just Cone, mess you phenomenal. Up, man. He's so phenomenal. Good. Yeah. Yes, phenomenal writing. And there's the, I, I think um, he explores this topic, and hopefully, I don't butcher it. But where white evangelicals start off as the cross being this glory point, this thing that's going to take me to glory, the experience of black people, I think he used the scripture to Acts, is that Jesus died upon a tree. And mm. so, in tying that mm. to lynching, yeah. Jesus. And so, in that, um, the experiences, the history that we are often told to forget and to get over is one of the strongest connection points to this spiritual liberatory figure, Jesus the Christ, that we yeah. have. Yeah. But yet evangelicals, white evangelicals, they create this erased history of that suffering. Yes. Um, and what that suffering was for and represented. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I just, I think, you know, if you haven't read James Cone, um, and I, I think James Cone is an excellent example in a black man being able to transform in public view because you see a transformation through his views. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. David and I were talking about this from the 60s, uh, 1969, I think his first book came out to when he wrote The Cross and the Lynching Tree in the 90s to this more inclusive and liberatory theology Mm -hmm. for all. And so Mm -hmm. when we talk about obstacles in this country um, that that we're facing and and becoming a, a more just... Um, I love that you, you are Corey, that you set yourself up to be this, this conversationalist around justice, faith and culture. Um, and that's, that's so modeled after Jesus, that this Christ-like figure, this figure who suffered and died. But that just makes me question then if, if that is the case, if that is the experience, if because in suffering, we're having to talk about uh, racism and white supremacy and how oppressive it is. How how does that affect you on a personal level in your daily mm-hmm. life? How you exist in the world? Yeah, man. I, I think and I hope this answers your question. But you you said something that that I really wanted to to speak to is that oftentimes when black people are outspoken about justice, certainly ones who come from um, hail from sort of the Christian tradition. The assumption is that you have become pro-black because you have, you know, read James Baldwin and or, you know, the writings of Dr. King or Malcolm X or watching Malcolm X videos that, you know, that that, that you're just this um, uh, sort of black empowered from the nation of Islam. That's kind of what people think. Well, 
for me, my motivation and what started all of this for me was theological. I, I started talking about race more the more I began to understand that the Bible from cover to cover is or are, I should say, books about justice. Mm. Like, and, and people over the years have been like, well, the Bible's about so many other things. I'm like, no, no, no. When you reduce it down to its mm-hmm. bare essentials, these books were written about human beings trying to understand how they should live with one another. And when you see sort of the prophets speaking and the, the wrath of God showing up, it's, it's kind of around this idea of if you walk into a house and there are 10 people in the house um, and nine of them are starving and one of them is fat, that's where the Bible is speaking to is that that's not okay. We have to do something about that. How do we, how do we repair this broken thing? And so for me, when, when you talk about like me talking and speaking up and and living for this, it's, it's, it's more about my commitment to understanding my relationship to God. And therefore, how should I relate to people Hmm. than it is me trying to be pro black? Um, I am pro black. Because it's empowering to be pro-black, but that does not mean that I'm anti anything else. There's, and that's sort of this hmm. this this, dichot- this false dichotomy that's created. It's like by me being pro-black or saying Black Lives Matter, that and and Becky, you hit on it earlier. I think for a lot of white people, because they're so accustomed to learning themselves as the protagonist mm-hmm. and the center of attention, and everything sort of built around them mm-hmm. from flesh-colored. Uh, band-aids to uh, the history that we learn in school mm-hmm. to, um, you know, all of the, the things that sort of inform us that mm-hmm. whiteness is the center of America. Anytime you decenter that, it's offensive. So me saying Black Lives Matter is not saying I hate white people, mm-hmm. but white people feel decentered by me saying that. White people feel decentered by me saying pro-black, and that's um, not a me issue. Um, you know, and, and I think learning to, to not be codependent in my own life has helped me in a lot of ways when it comes Mm. to dealing with social issues. It's like, I'm not going to be, you know, white people and black people are trauma bonded, bonded by slavery. And we can't like act like we can't keep acting like slavery didn't happen here. It did. No. Yeah, definitely. You know, when, when we look at other examples of slavery, like, you know, just from the Exodus story, the Jews left Egypt. They didn't stay there. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And Many of the Jews stayed in Babylon, you know, post post the, uh, you know, the, the, the exile. A lot of them stayed after they could go back to their homeland, but a lot of them stayed. But we don't have a lot of writing or any writing I've seen about how the Babylonians and Jews lived and, and, and acted together. I have no idea what that was like. But I know in America, for black people and white people having to live with each other, with not just slavery, but just... 50 to 55 years ago, civil rights movement. That's not like, no, like that's, this, this that's not like nothing. you were talking about ancient history. No, this no. is like right behind us. There are people living and walking today and breathing today who were arrested, shot at, attacked by dogs for marching with Dr. King. And they're, they're, they're alive today to tell these stories to us. The, the one of the, um, uh, just recently in Los Angeles, one of the, the girls from the bombing in Alabama, there were, there were four that uh, were killed and five, one survived. There was a fifth that was at that church when it was bombed. She's in her 60s. 
Mm. Like mm-hmm. she's she's in her she's not like she's a hundred years old or no. eighty or nine. She's in her sixties. Mm. So this stuff is like right here with us. And so our emotional issues as black and white people, we are we have been in an abusive relationship. Mm. And we who are black who have been abused have to learn to not be codependent and not rescue white people from their from their pain, from their work, from their uh, from the messiness of having to deal with with racism and how they do it. I've talked to white allies and I've said, hey, listen, I'm glad you're doing this, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be messy. You're going to make some missteps. There's going to be one one group of black people who love what you're doing and there's going to be a group of black people who hate what you're doing mm-hmm. but you keep doing it anyway because it's important work and i don't know what the right answer is for you and i can't rescue you from that mm-hmm. nor should i because mm-hmm. it's not my job mm-hmm. yeah and my in our spiritual community we are we often have conversations um when we, when there's all these calls for for peace and unity it's like there's some things you don't have to straddle the fence on you know and so i uh there was a quote from your blog you said i don't know if it was from you or uh your words or that you were quoting somebody said the sinister result of going growing comfortable with injustice is that we start to call evil good and good evil mm. and so mm. I, I i was just struck I was so struck by that. Um, it's, it indicates the urgency and the necessity to call to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. so much of Black History Month, uh, if you want inspiration, is is truth tellers speaking mm-hmm. to power uh, yeah. when it seemed like they had none. But. Mm one of the things that I'm learning uh, that black women are teaching me that uh, my association with black people, people who are oppressed is that all power really is, is just ability. Mm. Um, And so if you have voice, if you have an ability, you can use that in a fight Mm. for justice. You can join this fight. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't have to stand on the sidelines. had a friend of mine that I, we used to talk about this stuff all the time and I would always say to him that Rome always wins and what I meant when I said that was that in each generation of people who resist empire um, the empire ultimately takes them out Dr. King was assassinated Malcolm X was assassinated Jesus was crucified yeah um they, there were tons of martyrs, even after the resurrection, you know, accounts, there are all, there's all this writing of more suffering, mm-hmm. um, you know, of, of disciples being beheaded and crucified, all those things that people who are outspoken in their generation usually don't win. Um, but ultimately, the, in the grander story, they are winning. The, 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 the martyrs, the, the, the oppressed, the people who are using their power and their voice to speak up, they are moving the ball forward for the next generation. And, and every time Rome and, and yeah. empire thinks that it has crushed the resistance, there's a whole other generation of people inspired by the people that they crushed to keep moving forward.
And that's one of the most important things to me about Black History Month is that, mm-hmm. you know, I know that there's a, you know, complicated history of Black History Month. Some some folks are like one month. We, why should we continue to do this and celebrate that they give us one month? And other people are like, well, it's important that we at least have that. And, and maybe some people fall in between. But I will say that the importance of a month like this is that we get to hear the stories of people who spoke up and who moved the ball forward for all of us. And we can pick up on what they said and did and go, oh, yes, here's how I can retell their story in my time, because my experience is the same. That's what's really crazy to me when you read like a James Baldwin and you read the things that he's saying and you go, yo, this was a. this was 45 years ago, and I just said this yesterday. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I just had this experience mm-hmm. last week. You know, so I think that's the importance is that it's not just mm-hmm. that, like, we remember them, but it's also that we feel a sense of connection to go, their story is my story. You can go, well, me too. I'm not alone in this. This is why the Bible is so powerful in times where you have the things that the writers of Scripture are writing that you're like, Oh man, I I didn't know that anybody else had ever experienced that or ever felt that. That's exactly what I feel. That's exactly what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. So it's not even that like for me at this point in my life, it's not even this like I read scripture to go, well, God's gonna fix it. I read scripture more now to go, how did this human being who wrote this down feel about what they were going through? And how do they respond to it? And how did they pray? And how did they, where did they see God in it? And where did they see human beings? And where's the justice and the injustice and the equity and the, the inequity and the, the, the equality? Where, where's all of that in the story? Um, more so than I'm reading it because I'm checking a box or because I think that there's some magic that God's going to show up and pay all my bills or you know I mean, deal with all my depression and anxiety. It's just going to, I don't, I don't look for that. What I look for is the yes. humanity. And what I'm reading and like what, how human beings lived through the stuff that I'm living through. Mm, yes. Bible is narrative, man. That's, that's mm-hmm. so good. That's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Mm. It's again, it's showing us your words just showed us how it's so important to mm-hmm. look at the ancestors and to look at this piece of history but when we're looking we're not looking just like you said we're not we're not looking for this overarching we're looking at the mm. individual and how they responded and that oh, I love that you said the emotions and the feelings and that is so important because if being an embodied human being yeah. every part counts it's not just following you know how did um they follow the commandments or um what laws did they break? But it's literally how their actions and how whatever group of peoples mm-hmm. were around them at that time. Well, and it gives you permission to be mm-hmm. like, you know, no pun intended, but you're you good. get permission to be, right? When you can see that someone else, and I don't, I'm not even sure, I don't know where this comes from for, for us as humans, but when you see that someone else has thought, believed, felt, been through what you've been through, there's something about that that makes you go, oh, okay, yeah, like, like uh, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm not, I'm not the only, not being, I'm not the only one, and that is what um, Black History Month sort of connects us to, certainly as Black folks, but also as white folks, is that like there is a, there are people who have existed and people who are still existing and being 
that are moving the world forward and they're connected to all of us. And I think that the more white folks are in tune with their own ancestry, mm-hmm. I think the more anti-racist they become. Mm. Because if I'm in tune with the true history of my ancestors, mm-hmm. what they did, mm-hmm. how they acted, the world that they created, mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't know very many people who won't, wouldn't then be like, oh man, that was really messed up. Yep. And I need to, I have a, I have to do something now to like help make this right. Because mm-hmm. if your mom went out and murdered some parents mm-hmm. and left some children orphaned, mm-hmm. you as a conscientious person who finds out about that goes, I gotta, I gotta help those kids. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't do that. My mom did that, but that's not I, my connection to my mom gives me a connection to those kids mm-hmm. in this trauma bond. Mm-hmm. And I got to do something about this. I have to, I, I got to make sure they get to school. I got to make sure that they eat. I got to make sure that they're clothed, that they have home. And, and even if it's an added disadvantage or, or puts me out some, I still got to do it because something awful happened to them based on someone who I'm connected to. And so I think the more white folks even get into the true history of America, mm-hmm. the genocide, the slavery, the, mm-hmm. the brutality towards people of color, uh, and women and, and people from the LBGTQ community, like all of the brutality that that Americans have done to these people, the more we can begin to understand, like, I'm connected to that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot easier to get involved in anti-racism work and justice work in the world. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. Dear white people, public service announcement. I don't care if your if your family, your ancestors treated enslaved people good. That 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 gives me no comfort. So please stop saying it. <laughs> we were, we were, you know, my family was benevolent to the people that we owned and treated as cattle. That, that's like, crazy. You, I, you won't believe how many times I have heard that from well-meaning white friends. Just stop.